I invite you to take your Bible tonight and turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. I will let you know at the beginning of this message that this is a longer message. And you're like, oh, I'm really worried now because you already preach a long time, right? But there's a lot of... um, a lot of things to, that I wanted to, to look at tonight with this theme of your word is truth. And you, you see it, it has a subtitle. I don't always have subtitles for messages, but I did for this one. I look at the inspiration and translation work of Scripture. And I kind of alluded to this morning in the email um, that I sent out at the end of the week last week that I feel like this is an a important discussion and topic that, that all Christians should be familiar with, how we got our Bible and you know, what is, it, what is the English Bible we hold today? Um, but also, what are the, the heavenly origins of the Word of God? Because, you know, truth is important. What we understand about uh, the, the truth of God's Word and what God says. Because one of the things, I don't know about you, but one of the things I value most in life is truth. I mean, you can take or leave almost any other commodity in life. Truth is vital to life. Um, I always want to know you know, what's going on, what might be going on, uh, how I might need to be involved, or what that truth means for my life. And so, you know, just take a a simple, perhaps silly example of something like, you know, when you ask someone, how are you? And you get the typical response, which is, fine, good, right? And those are very low engagement responses, right? If you hear that, it's easy to go, okay, that's great. You just go on with life. You know, quite frankly, because I love truth so much, I really want to know what's going on in somebody's life. And some people will challenge you with that, right? Because they'll just tell you everything that's going on. With them. Now everybody's like, well, we're going to tell you everything that's going on. That's great, okay? We like to know what's going on in people's lives. I value truth from my wife, from my children, family, friends, fellow Christians, community leaders, and more. I mean, truth is vital and important in our lives. And the greatest truth that we can ever hold, know, And understand is the truth of God's word. So tonight, I want to take time. I'm just going to tell you right now, the time we're going to take probably isn't a drop in the bucket of the time you could take to discuss some of these things, right? I mean, this this turns into um, master's work classes if you, the the deeper and deeper you go into something like this. But we're going to take the time have tonight to, to look at, at the truth of God's word and look at the history of our Bible today beginning with its heavenly origins. The truth of God's word is vital to our lives and a firm commitment to seeking out God's truth is necessary for your life in him. If you are going to live a successful Christian life, you have to make a commitment to knowing, applying, and living out the truth of God's word. And so, therefore, we need to understand what is that truth, and and I think it's important that we even understand how we got it today and what it means for our lives. So, the first the first part of this tonight I want to look at is is our truth is truth defined, um, and we're gonna this is where we're gonna spend uh, the first point tonight. We're gonna spend in Psalm one nineteen and verse one sixty in just a second. This is kind of the the message part, and then I'm going to tell you in a second, we're going to kind of go from the message into more of the, the historical and the classroom side of things as we look at the, at the history of our Bible. So in Psalm 119, verse 160, you read this. I, 
Uh, I'm sorry, go back. I, I looked at the wrong verse. The entirety of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. So as we look at the word of God and we look at Psalm 119, Psalm 119 is perhaps the greatest chapter on the word of God that you have in, in the Bible. There are 176 verses in Psalm 119, and all but somewhere between five and seven of them, de- depending on how you would define a reference to word, all but five to seven of these verses have a reference to the word of God. I, I have said it before that I think Every Christian should take time, and probably more than one time, to go through Psalm 119 and seek to truly understand what it says about God's Word and what it, how, how it talks to us about the Bible. It gives us descriptions, praises, and admonitions regarding the Word of God. And here, near the end of this chapter, we find this verse that we just read. And in it, we are reminded what the Word of God is. In a word... The word of God is truth. And so what we see, first of all, from this verse is that truth originates with God. The psalmist records, he says here, that that the entirety or the sum of your word is truth. The totality of the Bible is true. That means, when he says it is true, that it is faithful and trustworthy. And since... The Bible is given by the God of truth. The Bible defines what truth is. I don't know if you've heard some of these, but if you around and you listen to the the way, the things of the world, or you have friends who live these ways, you may hear these phrases from time to time. People will say things today like, well, truth is relative, or truth is what you make it, or my personal favorite, well, that is your truth, right? And, and every single one of those statements goes against the definition of what truth is. Truth can't be relative. It can't be what my truth is or what I make it. Instead, we understand that truth is unchanging, unfeeling, unfaltering, and everlasting. Truth comes from God. And there are different facets in the expression of truth. Truth originates with God, and truth is defined by God. And so, therefore, we look in the Word of God, and we see what does the Bible tell us the truth about? Well, the Word of God is true, first, about us. It tells you and me who we are. It tells us how we got here. It tells us that we are made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 27, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so as God's image bearers, we are God's very personal creation. We are the pinnacle of his creative work. So God's word tells us the truth first about who we are. Then secondly, it also tells us furthermore in there, the truth of what mankind has become. From Genesis chapter 3 on, you understand that man chose sin over obedience to God. And that choice has affected every single one of us. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. The Bible doesn't lie about who we are and what is wrong with us. 
We live in a world, as I said, where it seems harder and harder to get straight truth from people. It's very hard to, to just get what, what really boils down, and this is what's true, and this is what's right. And so it's refreshing to know that this, that this about God's word, that God's word always tells us the truth. It doesn't hide the truth. It tells us exactly what we need to know. Furthermore, God's word then is true about whatever subject it teaches us or talks about or touches. You understand that the Bible isn't a textbook, I hope. You don't, you don't read it like a textbook. You don't approach it like a textbook. The Bible is God's word to us. It doesn't claim to be the authority on math and science and history. However, where it does touch these subjects, and it does touch them from time to time, it is true. We read primarily in the scriptures. We talked this morning about how the, you could boil the whole scripture down, the, the whole word of God down to Jesus and his work, right? And how the Old Testament points forward to who Jesus is and what he would do. The, Old, the New Testament after Jesus points back to him. We talked about the cross this morning. But you understand that a, a large part of that story of who Jesus is, of that, of that word of God to us, is a selected history of God's work in the nation of Israel. I mean, there's a, a huge chunk of our Bible in the Old Testament that is a selected history of the nation of Israel, how it came to be, what God did. But even that large chunk isn't all the history of Israel, right? I mean, there are thousands of years. I mean, again, to, to say, well, it doesn't tell us everything. What book will tell you everything that happened, right? God uses his word to tell us what we need to know about him and us. We read what God did in his people and how he created and preserved that nation. We read how he sent the deliverer, Jesus, into the world. And time and again, you'll read that historians and archaeologists have borne out this truth. The Bible is accurate. And we all go, surprise, right? And, for the, and in the records of history, in the Bible, let me make this statement. You will find some things in the Bible that aren't true. Did you know that? Because guess what? The Bible records that peop, there were some people and they told lies, right? So you, you got worried there for a second, didn't you? So when we look at the Bible and we see that, that does that make the Bible untrue? No. It, may, it is a truthful recording of a lie that someone else told. And the Bible, by the way, then goes on to show us the consequences of such actions. Consider something like this. Religions and scientists offered for years their views, postulations, and myths about how the world existed or was held up. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's very interesting in Job, one of the earliest books in the Old Testament, it records this in Job 26, verse 7. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. You know, we, there are famous religions that talk about the earth riding on the back of a giant turtle, right? Or other things like that. Things that talk about, hey, well, this is how the world hangs or exists. Well, would it surprise you to find out that the world does genuinely hang on nothing in space. Who keeps it there? God does. The word of God is, is truthful and accurate. The Old Testament is littered 
with prophecies that were written hundreds of years before they were fulfilled. And we see in these, we see these fulfillments in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so truth originates with God. He defines it, he gives it, he preserves it, he, he, keeps, he, he keeps these things to come true. And since then, God is eternal as he is truthful. The second thing we want to see here is that is his truth is eternal. The second part of Psalm 119 verse 160 says, And everyone of your righteous judgments endures forever. The word of God is as eternal as God is. And thus, it is foundational to our lives. It is our stable and sure foundation. David, who authored many of the Psalms and to whom this Psalm may even be attributed to, lived a very chaotic life. I mean, if you just reflect on some of the things that you know about the life of David, he, he ran from Saul. He was a man of war. He ruled the nation of Israel. He gave in to sin and pleasure. He broke fellowship with God. And the word of God to David was his sure and secure foundation. He ran back to God. And as David ran back to God, so should we. Our lives today really aren't any less chaotic, are they? I mean, how many of you feel like sometimes you live in controlled chaos in your life? Okay? All the moms, you know, and dads, right? We run from one thing to the next. We face one personal or global crisis after another. We struggle in our battles against sin. You know what we need? We need the Word of God in our lives. It has been established by our eternal God, and it will stand the test of time. So let us not turn away from it, but let us run to it and cling to it. You can find comfort in this. That which God has established as truth will not change. That's a great comfort. Today, there are countless morals being questioned and challenged. What once used to be called wrong and evil or even abominable is accepted, celebrated, and promoted in our sinful culture. And when this happens, you see a rift develop even within what we may call broadly the church as a whole. If you look out in the scene of churches across the world or specifically in the United States today, you will see that there are some churches who embrace what I would call an adapt and survive to a survive mentality. Have you seen this at all as you've looked at churches? And I will use the word churches loosely, all right, because some of them aren't biblical to begin with. They wrap their arms around the world, embracing what is wrong and seeking to score some points. But here's something you need to understand. What God has said is right and wrong doesn't change. And where do we find that? Do we find that because some preacher stands up in a pulpit and says, this is right and this is wrong? No, you look and say, thus says the Lord. That's who defines what truth is. God does, not us. Right is always right because it's defined by God. Wrong is always wrong because it goes against God. It doesn't matter what my opinion is. It matters what God says. And there's great comfort in that. I don't know about you, but I know in my own heart, in my own life, how fickle and unsure I am about some things. 
I know how untrustworthy I can be because I make a judgment in the heat of the moment or react in a wrong way, or frankly, I just change my mind about something. But there is great solace in the fact that God has established what is right and what is wrong, and his truth stands forever. David said, or the psalmist said earlier in Psalm 119, verse 52, I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. The word of God gives And so, since God's word is so important, it is vital that we understand the promises God made about his word. God promised in his word to preserve his word. Throughout scripture, we see God in his word talking about his word and its eternal nature. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I would ask you this, what good is the source of eternal truth if God isn't going to protect and guard that source of eternal truth, right? Matthew 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. God's word doesn't expire, and so he has kept that word for us to read today. And I think it's important that we start any discussion about the Word of God with the Word of God, right? That's where you have to go first. You and I have to understand God defines truth, and and just as, as truth is defined by God, and therefore it is eternal, right, we have to understand that, and we have to submit our lives to it. And then... After we have passed through that and we understand the the heavenly origins of the word of God, then we can begin to discuss other things related to the Bible. And so I want to step away from this side and I want to step into what I call the classroom for the rest of this this message tonight. And so again, I have done, I've read a lot and listened to a lot of things over the years, so I have done my best to take the major thoughts and things that, so that you can have a working knowledge of this. And, and I'll just say this. If you get to the end of this tonight, you're like, man, i got more questions, or I'd like to do some more reading, I, I can help you with that, okay? Um, but I just want to kind of get us on the same page and help you understand. I mean, you're holding a Bible in your hands or on your phone. I mean, how do I get that? Where does it come from? What, what should I be looking for in the Word of God? Um, and and how, do these, how do these things all fit together? So... The, the next thing, we, we looked at where truth comes from, but secondly tonight, we look at how truth is transmitted. It would be impossible for us to know anything about God except for what God reveals to us. And so therefore, God has given us his word by, through a process which we call the inspiration of scripture. Now, if you've been around church, you've probably heard this before, heard this word at least. But one of the things we have to understand is you and I, in and of ourselves, cannot discover God on our own. We cannot attain the heights of heaven and demand God give us information. Therefore, inspiration of Scripture is necessary, for it is only from God that we learn about God. So God tells us the process by which we receive the Word of God. In 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, Paul wrote this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. One major 
thing to understand here is when, when, when Paul wrote inspiration, is given by inspiration of God. That phrase, th- those words in Greek, literally translate to God breathed. All scripture is breathed out by God. He gave his word through his chosen servants. This is true of both the Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers. We often refer to this as verbal plenary inspiration. Okay, and I'm going to define those big words here. Okay, verbal, we understand that one probably, meaning that God inspired the words of the Bible, not just some broad ideas. At the same time, plenary means that everything in the scripture is God's word. You don't have to, to worry about what you're reading here. God, God has inspired all of his word. God gave these men what he wanted them to write. They were not men of unusual spiritual insight or of some higher order of mankind. I mean, we know the history of some of these guys. I mean, take, take a guy like Moses who was educated under Pharaoh, but then he became a shepherd, right? And, and so he has a very unique background. Then take a guy like Peter, who wrote some of the word of God. He was a fisherman. He grew up completely different in a different time. At the same time, we see that God allowed them to write their own, in their own unique styles and drawing from their own different backgrounds and educations and experiences, it's an amazing process that was all guided by God, as Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And that word move that comes near the end of verse 21 literally talks about being carried along like a ship on the sea. In fact, the only other time it's used in the New Testament, it talks about a ship that's being moved in the ocean. And that's exactly what God did. God is the main focus in all of this, for it is his word. In his grace, he has told us how we got this word, and we can see its truth borne out time and again. So God inspired his word, but then practically, how were these things recorded for us today? Well, The writers of Scripture, recording the Word of God, recognize their divine origin. As you read the Scriptures, somewhere around 3,800 times, 3,800 times, the Bible reports, thus says the Lord, or God said. That's quite a lot. The messages preached and the things recorded have a recognized divine source. The authors of Scripture receive God's Word and recorded it for others to read or for it to be repeated and given broadly to others. And so then, just so we understand, the original text, okay, when someone received the Word of God by inspiration and wrote it down, that original piece of parchment or papyrus or whatever it was written on is called an autograph, an original autograph. Now, it is worth noting that we do not have any of those remaining today. We don't, you can't go to a museum or wherever and say, look, there's the paper, the, you know, and I use paper, that's just the way we would think of, that Moses wrote on, right? Or John or Paul or Amos, you know, pick one of these guys. However, over the years, the duplicating of God's word was a task that was 
undertook by many. And that process wasn't the same as it was today. So let's say that tonight you are here and you wanted to give a copy of God's Word to someone else, but yet you only had one printed Bible. You know, you, you had this Bible and you said, look, I want to give a copy of this to someone else and they don't have a phone. I got to give it to them physically. Well, you, you could walk out to the church office. You could open the copier, right? You could slap that book right on there, hit the button. And if, you know, it doesn't beep at you until you did something wrong, what's going to happen? It's going to print out copies, right? And as long as you got ink and paper, you can make as many of these copies as you want. Well, you probably know this. But, uh, you know, even that old school method, right, we would call the old, probably copying something an old school method, right, that's light years ahead of what anyone at the time the Bible was being written had, right? They didn't go down to Staples and pay their money to use the Xerox machine. They had to come up with another way to do this. I mean, the printing press wasn't even around when this process was first being undertaken. And so... The Bible had to be copied, how? By hand. Letter for letter, word for word, line by line. Now, sometimes the Bible was written on papyrus. Now, this is a a material that's similar to a very thick paper, and it's made from the pith of the papyrus plant. It's typically found in, it it, it came from ancient Egypt is where it originated. And this had a very short shelf life. Now, you had the the, the arid climates there in Egypt where these things would last longer, but typically the life of a papyrus is about 20 years, and then it's unusable. So you get about 20 years of this written document, and that's all you're going to get. Eventually, the parchment was also invented and became a way of recording these things. Parchment is made from animal skins. It was much more durable, and it's viable for long-term use. And so then, these things would be, these methods or these vehicles would be put into a couple methods that would be used. So first, many times probably when you think of the ancient manuscripts and documents of Scripture, you think of the scroll, right? Um, Maybe you've seen a a duplicate or a replica of a scroll, and this is kind of what, what it would look like. These are rolls uh, of the selected writing medium. They could be made of papyrus or, or made out of uh, vellum, right, parchment. Sometimes these were as long as 40 feet. And so what you would do is you would roll out that scroll to the portion of Scripture, right, that you needed to reference. We, we, we learn about Jesus, we read of Jesus talking about opening the scrolls there in the temple, right, or in the, or in the synagogue as he taught, This was common in ancient times. Eventually, though, there was another method that was introduced. This this picture, I have a picture up here. It's called a codex. Now, a codex is the ancestor to the modern book. And you look at that and you're probably like, it looks like a book. Well, that's that's called a codex. Uh, The pages of the writing, whatever you're writing on, they were bound together. In fact, many or, or some people believe that Christians actually were the ones who originated the codex for the process of copying the scriptures. Now, that's, we don't know that for sure, but that's what some people believe as you study history. Using these methods, great undertakings were done to copy the scripture. So, what are some different ways they would do that? Sometimes 
one person would sit and copy the scriptures, right? They would have the one copy over here, the one they're working on, they would go very carefully, meticulously, and they would copy those things out. Other times, there was somebody who would read the words of Scripture, and there would be many people in a room writing it down. They were trying to produce more than one copy, so one person would sit and read the words and call these things out, and other people would write those things down for, that, for, for the dissemination. So, then the question comes up, well, what about human error? How many of you have ever written something, something down and you didn't get it right when you wrote it down? Yeah, Okay. I think we've all been there, right? Is is it possible that things have been missed or changed or added or anything else along the way? Well, that's a good question. And so that's where we're thankful for those who have given their lives to the study of these things. We look now at truth pursued because to to truly appreciate the the preservation of Scripture, it is important to have a a basic understanding of of this next part of, of the preservation of God's Word. And that is this. It is a process which we call textual criticism. Okay? Now that term may not be what you think it is. Okay? If you think, you look at that and you go, that's a bunch of people attacking the Bible. That's not what it is. Okay? It is not a group of people banding together to criticize what God has said. It is instead the very opposite. And one of the, the chief textual critics of our day, his name, I'm going to reference him a couple of times, his name is Daniel Wallace. He has defined textual criticism in this way. Textual criticism is the discipline that attempts to determine the original wording of any documents whose original no longer exists. So, I, get, I told you this earlier, how many of the original documents that the, that the author penned directly from God still exist? Zero. So, would textual criticism be something we need to apply to the Scriptures? Yeah, we don't have the original, so we need to compare the, the documents that we do have in an attempt to understand what is the original wording of the text. Our goal is to assure that we have the correct wording of the Bible, because if the Bible truly is the most important book we'll ever own, read, or otherwise, and it is, then shouldn't we devote our highest and best efforts to knowing all about it? Yeah, we should and we have. And what we learn as we study this is quite fascinating. So the major, one of the major things when you're dealing with textual criticism is you're going to, we're going to talk about textual variance. Because I, I mentioned you a second ago, how many of you have written something down and you didn't write it down right? Okay. Now, how many of you, maybe you've, you, you've written down something down with someone else, you're supposed to write the same thing down, but one of you wrote something completely different than the other person, right? Or slightly different, right? That is what we would call a variant on what was supposed to be written. So as it is the more recently authored, the New Testament, honestly, is the focus of many critics. And of course, we understand it's also going to be the focus of many critics because of what it teaches us about who Jesus is and our need for faith in him. So this man, Daniel Wallace, as mentioned earlier, his work is focused mainly on the New Testament. So I want to look at some of the things that he has shared on the New Testament here in just a second. But in order to understand this process of how textual criticism, criticism works, we need to understand the need. Okay, in the New Testament, there are approximately 138,000 words just in the New Testament, in those 27 books, okay? 
The process of textual criticism then looks at the records we have of all of these writings and compares them. Now, I told you that one of the original documents is called an onograph. But a copy of that, or a copy of a copy of a copy, these original in these original languages, is called a manuscript. So if you look at something that was written in Greek from, from these times or from over history, it's called a manuscript. And when something from one of these manuscripts doesn't match another, it is called a variant. And I'll show you a chart here in just a minute, but we have thousands of these manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, they're not always the entire New Testament. Sometimes they're certain portions of the New Testament. And we take all the ones that are from the same sections of the New Testament and we compare them. And when there's a difference, we call it a variant. Now, so there's how many words in the New Testament? 138,000. Now, when we look at all of the documents and all of the manuscripts and we look at the variants, there are 400,000 variants in the New Testament. Okay? You, you heard right, right. There are there is over two times more variance from the manuscripts than there are words. Now, one of the reasons that number is so large is because there are so many manuscripts, okay? But in looking at all the evidence, I think that you will see there's no reason that that number is worrisome to us at all. That there's, in fact, it's actually good to know that number and then understand the process by which we eliminate those things. It's actually quite reassuring to us that we can have the confidence that we know what the Bible actually says. So first, I want to look at the different types of what these textual variants are. So that number, 400,000, 75%, 300,000 of those variants are what we would call spelling and nonsense variants. How many of you have ever written something down and you misspelled a word? Okay, so 300,000 of these variants are misspellings or nonsense things. That happens, right? And you can look at it and, and, and compare it to other, te- again, textual criticism compares all the documents that are alike together to understand that, okay, that's not what that passage was supposed to say. It's quite obvious as you read the text and compare them that someone made a mistake in one manuscript or perhaps misspelled a word. And these are actually very easy to detect and have no effect on the Word of God. For example, I'm just going to give you one example. I told you there's 300,000 of these. We're not going to go through. 1 Thessalonians 2.7, you would read this. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. One textual variant reads it this way. But we were horses among you. It's a misspelling of the word. Now, you tell me, you start comparing that, That's a nonsense variant, right? Paul is not writing to the Thessalonians to say, we were horses, okay? It's someone was copying the manuscript, and they wrote the wrong word, they put the wrong wrong thing in, and so therefore you come up with a variant. This is 75% of the variants in the New New Testament text. We look at them, we go, okay, that doesn't make sense, that's a misspelling, you begin to compare all of the documents, you know, they all say this, this one says it this way, obviously this is the one that's wrong. And we can look at that and we can know that through textual criticism. And other manuscripts will bear that out. Secondly, there are other changes in the variants that you can't translate. These would be definite articles, um, word order, okay? In the Greek, in the, in the Koine Greek, which is the, 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 the language in which the New Testament was written, 
word order, word order is actually quite flexible. You'll find that in, in some foreign languages, the word order doesn't always matter. Right? You can put things in different places, and it means the same thing. Uh, that doesn't always translate in English, right? We have certain things that can't go certain ways. They've got to be here. And, but what you'll find in some of these manuscripts is words were moved. They were in one section. They were moved behind another word. It means the same thing, but it's, it's a variant, right? Because it was written in a different order than it was over here. They have no meaning, no, no bearing on the text. It doesn't change what the text means. It's just written in a different um, order. Third, there are what we would call meaningful but non-viable variants. Now, by viable, this is what we mean. We mean that one can make a case for being what the original text says. There is no credibility to a non-viable variant. I'm going to give you an example of this. And and again, I'm I'm going to go back and quote Daniel Wallace and what he said here to help you understand that point. He uses here the English Standard Version. He says, for example, in Luke 6.22, the English Standard Version reads... Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. But one manuscript from the 10th or 11th century lacks the words on account of the Son of Man. So instead it would read, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. That's a very meaningful variant since it seems to say that a person is blessed when he is persecuted, regardless of his allegiance to Christ. Yet it is only one, it is only in one manuscript, and a relatively late one at that. It has no chance of reflecting the wording of the original text, since all the other manuscripts are against it, including quite a few that are much earlier. So this is what we mean by a, 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 a um, meaningful change that is not viable. That variant that he gives as an illustration, that's a very meaningful change, right? That you're blessed. When you're persecuted, well, you can be persecuted for a lot of things, right? But what Jesus said is just you're blessed when you're persecuted, but you're blessed when you're persecuted in my, for my name's sake, on account of the Son of Man. And then lastly, there is a fourth category, a meaningful, viable variant. These, um, th- th- these are those who... I'm sorry, that's unsure if one reading is correct or the other. This is something that we look at and say, well, that that is true. It could be this way or it could be that way. So here are some facts about this. Number one, you you see up there, this makes up less than 1% of the New Testament variants. Less than than 1% of New Testament variants fall into what we would call meaningful and also viable variants in the manuscripts. Furthermore, they do not place any cardinal or crucial belief at stake. So, you look at these variants. I told you there's 400,000 of them because of the mountain of manuscripts. Less than 1% of them are even viable and meaningful, and none of it touches any cardinal doctrine of the faith. Now, I would say to you, I look at this, and it's very briefest thing, and I say, that doesn't affect my belief in the Word of God at all. God has preserved these manuscripts and, 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 and those who have, done, who have done the work have taken careful and painstaking processes to give us the Word of God. Now, let's talk about some things that, that illustrate this. Manuscript copying took place in different areas. 
Uh, there are different families of manuscripts. Some are younger manuscripts, as, as we read in that quote a minute ago. There's some from the later centuries. Some are older manuscripts. And so by comparing all of these manuscripts, we can be sure that we have the right wording of the Scriptures. And I would argue that a good Bible translator will include notes in the, in the margins of your text, notating the notable variants of a passage. And maybe you have a Bible like that that says some manuscripts omit this word or add this word. And that's nothing, by the way, to go, oh, oh no, you know. I find that very helpful. I want to know, like, okay, we have some questions about the manuscripts here, but it never affects the text. It just, it just helps us understand what may or may not have truly been there in the original. It doesn't challenge the authority or the strength of the passage. It actually enhances it. And it becomes clear through this practice of textual criticism that God has indeed miraculously preserved his word for us today. So here's a couple examples. First, I want to look at an example from the Old Testament. The basis for the Old Testament translation from the Hebrew to what we have today is known as the Masoretic Text. Now, this was written sometime around 600 to 900 AD. It is written in Hebrew and Aramaic, and it was compiled by Jewish scholars. And this text, the Masoretic text, is what all of your major English translations rely on. If you read from the King James, the English Standard, the the New American Standard, uh, just, just to give you a few of them, they rely on the Masoretic text for the translation of the Old Testament. And that was written in 600 to 900 A.D. Okay, fast forward about a little over, um, a thousand, at the very least, 1,000, maybe even 1,300 years later, in 1947, something very interesting happened. There were shepherds who were out, and they discovered ancient scrolls in the caves in the area of Qumran. How many of you have heard of the caves of Qumran? Okay. Over the next 10 years... 850 of these scrolls were found in this area, and those are known as the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is a picture of, of one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, these are dated anywhere from 250 to 150 B.C. So now you're talking, if, if the Masoret text was finished in 900 A.D., you're talking over 1,000 years since some of these scrolls were written. And just looking at one of these, we're amazed at what was discovered. The scroll of Isaiah that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was 95% word for word what was recorded in the Masoretic text. That's impressive, right? I mean, we have to look at that and go, that's impossible, right? For man, that is impossible. For God and his work is incredible work of him. Secondly, I would ask you to consider just the sheer numerical evidence when it comes to the manuscripts. I I mentioned I would reference this chart. It may be a little small for you to see uh, from back there, but but what this is, I can send this to you later if you want it. Um, This is a chart of these things that were written uh, late in the BC and early in the AD time period. How many years between the original first known copy of that text and how many of those manuscripts that we would have? So let me just maybe call out a couple here uh, that would be important. Um, You have Third on the list is Plato, who lived from 427 to 347 B.C., or his works were written between 427 and 347 B.C. The earliest copy we have of a work of Plato comes from 900 A.D. That's 1,200 years from when he wrote it to the actual copy that we have. 
and there are seven of those copies, okay? Um, you kind of go down the list here, you see different uh, guys that, that you may have known. Aristotle, who lived from 384, wrote from 384 to 322 B.C. The first copy that we have is from, again, from 1100 A.D., that's 1400 years uh, from the time it was written to the time that we have, and there's 49 of these manuscripts. You get down to Homer, who wrote the Iliad um, in 900 B.C. The earliest copy we have is 500 years later. It was 400 B.C., and there are 643 of those copies. And then you can see um, that you can finally actually get into the accuracy of what that would be, and we think we have about 95% accurate of the Iliad. Now, you go down this list, and you get to the New Testament that was written in the first century A.D., between 50 and 100 the earliest known manuscript that we have, or, the, or portion of manuscript, comes from the 2nd century A.D., uh, 130, which is less than 100 years later we have a manuscript. And of that, we have 5,600 manuscripts from this time. I mean, the, the evidence is overwhelming when you start comparing the numbers. And then it, you have some other notes down here that um, there are thousands of New Testament and Greek manuscripts than any other ancient writing, the internal consistency of the New Testament is of 99.5% textually pure when you compare these documents to each other. They're all within 99.5% of each other. And then, if you go out into other languages where the Bible is copied into Syriac, Latin, Coptic, Aramaic, um, you're, you're talking about 19,000 copies of these documents. This just kind of gives you a little brief look at, at, we have an overwhelming volume of manuscripts that God has preserved preserved for us today. And it helps us determine the wording of the scriptures and gives us confidence in it. And so, I would say to you, let's take heart in these things, right? There's a lot of confidence to be put in the word of God. There's so much more you could read or say on this, and I'd encourage you to do so. But I want us to move from the original now to where we sit today, because we sit in a church in the United States and talked talk last night about truth translated. Because we've been talking about original ancient languages, right? We're talking about Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. But there is a need uh, for us today. Obviously, I would venture to guess that most of us in this room do not read Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. You know, maybe you have a hidden talent you haven't shared, okay? We are English speakers. And if you're like me, sometimes you struggle with that language, right? And as such, you need an English what? Translation of the Bible. Something we have to recognize then is that our, our Bible, our English Bible, is accurate only as far as it is accurate then to the manuscript, right? The original. We would really say to the autograph, but we don't have any of that, right? So it has to be compared to what we do have, those manuscripts. And I think I I would hasten to, to add here, we have to establish an important thing. You need to understand re-inspiration is not a thing, okay? God did not re-inspire the Bible into the English language. It was inspired once to the original author and has been translated time after time, or, or, or preserved, written on the manuscripts, and then translated from there. The canon of Scripture closed a little over 1,900 years ago. God is no longer inspiring his word, which, by the way, gives you also some credence to, or some ammunition if you hear somebody say, well, God gave me a vision. God isn't inspiring the word of God, right? He has, he has given us his word. It's complete. 
It is our job then, with God's help, to carefully examine and translate the Word of God. So expectantly then, there are some different approaches with how this is done. There are different approaches taken in translating the Word of God. There's a couple major sections here when discussing approaches. Number one, there is a manuscript family that, you'll have, that, that these translators will use when they translate the Scriptures. They, manuscripts, when you look at the way they were copied, typically revolve around a place and time in history. I referred to this when I preached um, the end of John chapter 7 into the beginning of John chapter 8 with the woman who was caught in adultery. I talked a little bit there about manuscripts, fam, manuscript families. The younger texts come from what is known as the Byzantine family of manuscripts. These are from the Constantinople in western Turkey area. These are the basis of the King James Version and then subsequently the New King James Version uh, of Scripture. The other major family is known as the Alexandrian family from Alexandria, Egypt. These are older texts, and they're the basis of the English Standard and the New American Standard Bible. They're just kind of the major ones. So, first you have to decide, these translators have to decide, okay, what, what are we going to lean on most? Which manuscripts are we going to lean on, younger or older? And, and, and both, all four of those translations I just mentioned, by the way, can show that you, you get good translations from these texts, but you're going to see different things depending on the age of your manuscripts. Second, you need to decide then on an approach you're going to take when translating the Bible, and there's three major philosophies. I'm going to show you a slide here, but this is also available to you in a handout that was there and she came in tonight, uh, so I'd encourage you to pick one of those up and look at it. Uh, but there's, there's really some, some philosophies, some three major philosophies here when you talk about translating Scripture. Number one, which is all the way on the left of your uh, little line there on the handout or on the screen is what we would call the formal equivalent or the essentially literal translation of Scripture. This is a word-for-word translation of the Bible as much as possible. The goal is this. Reproduce the original text in the target language. So reproduce the Hebrew, the Aramaic, the Greek, and in our case, into English. Right? Word-for-word. We're pulling this from there and and to here as much as we can. Now, Some of these are extremely literal. I don't know if you've spent any time in a New American Standard Bible. Uh, That's a very literal translation. Sometimes it's it's actually quite clunky sometimes to read, but the, the goal was, okay, we're trying to be as literal as possible, word for word with the Scripture. Some... Uh, Other ones will provide words that help convey the meaning and phrasing in the target language. And then as you move from left to right, uh, you get into the the middle of this line, and and this is is kind of the thought for thought, or often it's called the dynamic equivalent approach to translating the Scripture. We're not going for word for word here. We're going for, as I just said, thought for thought. Here's what's being expressed. So we take this thought and we put it into English in our, in our instance. We're capturing the essence of what is being said and communicated. The most popular of these translation of scriptures is your NIV. Okay, if you've ever read the NIV, you have some other ones that will be a part of that, uh, like the NLT um, and the TNIV. Uh, but this is, this is their, their dynamic equivalent. Now, that doesn't make them a bad translation of the Scripture. I know many of you have read an IV. You probably own one, okay? I'm not here saying, oh, my goodness, you know, throw it under the bus and run over it, okay? But I would challenge you with this. I would challenge the concept that you use a dynamic equivalent exclusively, and that's all you ever use. Because as a student of the Word of God, 
you should set yourself a goal for yourself that I want to look at the text word for word and study it out for myself. Now, then maybe you say, well, I want to reference these other things to help me with that. But, but I would always say as, as your pastor, the goal is, hey, I want to be in a, a literal translation of the Bible so I can know this is what it says and I want to study these things out. That's what we use here. We use a literal translation. That's what we'll always use here, by the way, is a literal translation of the Scripture. And then you get into the far right, and maybe I did this the wrong way, I don't know. But the far right of that chart is the paraphrase section. So what you're doing is you're reading it, and you're restating it in your own words. Okay, we're not talking as much as translation as we are now, what I just said, paraphrase, right? Um, The message... And the passion, those who are on that list, are part of that. I, have any of you ever read the Message Bible before? Okay. Have you ever been, been confused by what you read in the Message Bible before? Okay. Um, it's, it is. It's extremely confusing because now you're really relying on someone else's thoughts about what this says in order for you to, to read it. Now, on this one, I do have strong words of caution that you should read this with any type of regularity. Again, can it be helpful? I think there are instances something like this can be helpful, but understand it's more of a, you're reading someone's commentary more than you are a translation of the scripture, right? And we all know how that is, right? I read a lot of commentaries, and, and I understand, you know, it's, this is written by a man. This is not written by God. You compare what he says with scripture. Because now you're subjecting yourself completely to the biases and theological bents of that person who wrote it. So, um, you know, if you want to read those to glean thoughts, just do so knowing what you're reading. Again, I'll let you, there's some other things on that handout that go through what these do. I'll let you read that on your own time. I'm not going to go through it here tonight. So then I want to talk then about what are some strengths and weaknesses of translations. So as a matter of personal preference and pastoral recommendation, um, here's what I'm going to tell you. Okay, I've already told you, if you own an IV and you read it and you, you prefer to, to spend time in dynamic equivalents, I'm not going to throw you under the bus, but I am going to make my own personal recommendation. My personal recommendation is that you read from a formal equivalent or essentially literal translation. And I would recommend that all Christians get a, a hold of a Bible that falls into this group and consult it on a regular basis. Now, there is what I call, I often call them the big four, okay, King James, New King James, English Standard and New American Standard all are the kind of the, the ones that everybody recognizes um, are the big four in the group of um, essentially literal or, equi- or a formal equivalent. Now, within these, there's some differences on how some things are done. Some of them uh, will highlight, or I'm sorry, italicize words. Some of you have noticed that you have italicized words in your Bible sometimes, okay? Um, don't do like the pastor did one time. You know, he, he read... He said, today we're going to look at the Word of God, and he said, we're going to read this verse, Our Father, which art in heaven. And we're going to focus on that word which because it's italicized, okay? Um, those words are italicized because they're provided by the translator to help you understand the context of the, of the passage, okay? So um, they're very helpful. They're needed, right, for us to understand what the wording is from Greek because, again, sometimes languages don't require the same things that our language does. So they'll provide these words to, to help us understand this is how the sentence flows, um, Sometimes these added words can hinder the translation. I have pointed that out to you um, when we were studying the book of John, um, at, earlier in the book of John in our study, and we'll see it again later in the book of John. When someone asked Jesus or asked him a question, he said, and the, the scripture said, I am he, and that he was italicized. And I pointed out to you uh, there's a, that actually, in my opinion, and in a lot of people's opinions, that, that hinders the text because the phrase says, I am he, it is, I am. 
but then I always follow that up with, but at least you know it's italicized. You're like, okay, that was added in to try to smooth that out, and perhaps here it was kind of a weaker thing we, should, we shouldn't have done. Um, some translations will capitalize pronouns that refer to God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Um, I think that's a very reverent thing to do. I think it's helpful sometimes. When you're reading a text, you read a he, and you're like, is that the, the guy or Jesus, right? And you're like, okay, it's, it's capitalized, so that's talking about Jesus. Newer translations will often point out textual variants. I, I, I told you that earlier. Sometimes you'll have little notes that say, well, the best manuscripts say this or don't include that. Those are immensely helpful and help you understand textual criticism that has taken place. And then another strength and weakness sometimes to consider is the age of a translation that you're using. The King James and the updated New King James are a testament to the work that was put into those. I mean, you can look at the King James Bible and, New King, and then the New King James, which has been much more recently, they've updated that, and you look at that and you say, wow, um, they, they have stood for generations. I mean, I don't know about you, my mom, I was just at my mom's house, you know, for, on our trip, and uh, while I was there, my dad brought in from a storage room the first Bible they ever gave me, you know, it was a little King James Bible. Probably many of you in this room, you grew up reading a King James Bible, right? It's a good translation. It's literal. Um, there are certain times and certain places, though, um, that, that it does show its age, right? I always say to people, can you tell me, what does evil concupiscence mean, <laughs> you know? Uh, those are big words. Um, it was common at the time, people who read that, oh, yeah, that's, we know what that means, right? Uh, but we did a struggle. I, I remember when I was a, a youth pastor, first getting into the ministry, one of the things I had the privilege to do was I had the privilege to teach the Bible to 6th, um, 7th, and 8th graders from the public school. We would pick them up on Fridays. I would get them for about 25 to 30 minutes in a Bible class. Our church did not use King James, and I'm telling you, I was, we used another literal translation. I was thankful for that because I didn't have to spend half the class explaining to them what these words meant because they didn't, they didn't, they didn't grow up in church. They told you they grew up in church, but they didn't. Um, and and you know, they didn't know the basic things about the Bible. To them, that was a foreign, you know, the Shakespearean language was sometimes a very foreign language. It doesn't mean it's not beautiful. It doesn't mean it's not a good translation. It just means sometimes it's hard for people to understand. We get that. Also, not only has our language evolved and changed, older manuscripts have been discovered and, and introduced in the textual criticism world that call for some of these things to be reevaluated. I mean, think about the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were found in 1947. The original King James was translated in 1611. Thank you. I knew somebody would know that, you know. So that's 300 and something years later, we're still discovering these manuscripts that need to be taken into account. You have the New American Standard Bible, which has undergone revisions um, over the years. Some of them prefer the, um, the 1995 version. I know in the last few years there's been another version that has come out. Um, again, just an attempt. You know, and I think that sometimes we get scared, oh, there's a new version. It's, it's not a new version. It's just a continuing, ongoing, hey, we're trying to be faithful to what the Word of God says. We're trying to continue to understand these things. But that's still a newer translation, even though, but it is, it is clunky. English Standard Version 
um, is probably the easiest of these to read. I know I've, I've seen some of you carry English Standard Versions um, to church already. I saw somebody left a Bible at church this morning, and I saw it sitting there, and I looked on the side, and, oh, look, that's an English Standard Version. You know, that's personally what I use in my own devotions. I find it um, something that, that, that's, um, that provokes me to, to think about what God is saying and, and read the Word of God. It's, it's roughly, um, if you look at it, it's on an eighth-grade reading level, and it balances literalness of the Scripture with a smoothing out of the wording to help us understand the meaning. Now, at the end of the day, not a single one of these is an original autograph or even a manuscript, right? It's a translation. But they are useful for us today. And so you can place confidence in any of them knowing that the translators have worked hard and also knowing you should continue to study the Word of God and what these things mean. And so then, I want to apply this, I'm going to take this we apply it to our personal lives, but I want to apply it to our corporate lives as a church. As a church, it's very important when you select a translation of the Scripture that you're going to use that you, that, that you understand, and you understand and consider these things. Now, so what I'm going to give you here, when I, when I think about choosing a translation for a church, these are my thoughts, okay? This is not Bible. This is just how I apply the Scriptures as a pastor um, to, you know, seeking to lead a, a church. Number one... I think a church actually needs to choose a translation that they use. Um, it's very confusing, I find, that if you go to a church and the pastor reads from one version, you know, one translation, and somebody reads from another translation, or maybe you go to the, Sunday school, the memory verse comes out from Sunday school in another translation, your head kind of starts to spin, right? Um, I don't know about you, but I, I always have a certain translation if I'm sitting, if I'm going to church, I sit or sit in Sunday school and I read from, and sometimes I'll be at a church where they don't use the same translation I'm holding in my lap. And, and that, you know, you have to keep up sometimes, you know, but that's okay. I choose to do that. It's confusing sometimes when, when there's other things, you know, maybe a guest speaker comes in and uses even another translation. I have a, a friend of mine, he's a good friend of mine. Um, he was a pastor on a pastoral staff at a church, and all these guys would take turns preaching, and they all chose different translations to preach from. And it's just kind of, it's always a fascinating thing to me. You know, I, I think personally, a church should choose one. And not, not to say these aren't reliable translations, but when you're in the context of corporate worship. It's helpful to have a standard. Now, personally, when I prepare messages, I have three different translations of the scripture open on the screen at any time. But our church has been using uh, New King James in corporate settings. Second, I think a church should choose a formal equivalent or a central literal translation. You know, when you look at that chart, I think if you're going to preach the word of God, we need to say, okay, this is a, a literal translation of the scripture. This is what we're preaching. If the goal is to study the Word of God, then go towards the end, of, the end of that list that is closest to the original. You can reference other translations. You can talk about commentators. Again, if you have been here, you know I reference other, you know, another way to say this, or a commentator said this, or a pastor said this. But the focus should be not on what another person has said, but on what God has said. And then third, I think we should choose a translation which best fits the context in which you're in. Honestly, sometimes that's a pastoral preference, right? A pastor is leading a church and says, I think, I think this is the way we should go with our church, you know? Um, sometimes your cultural context plays a part. Uh, what's going to stay true to the original, but then also help us engage in ministry? We don't want to put up barriers to ministry as we seek to reach people with the gospel. And sometimes in a church, you know, you, you make a change, Right? Sometimes you've got to make a change, um, or, or, or you just, 
you, you say, hey, this isn't bad, but where it's time to go a different direction, or we would like to, to go with this translation of the Scripture. And so, that's the course our church sets as of tonight. Going forward, our church is moving from the New King James as our primary translation to the English Standard Version to be used in our, uh, all of our public readings and exhortations and preaching. So I tell you that because when you come next week, things are going to be a little bit different, okay? Now, let me just tell you something. If you use a different translation and you say, hey, this is what I use for my personal study or I follow along, or you're asked, hey, in Sunday school, will you read this verse? And you say, well, I don't have an English Standard Version. That's fine. Read whatever you have in front of you, Okay. Somebody said to me, you know, I use, I was talking about translation, I use this. I said, I'm just glad you're bringing a Bible to church. You know, that's great, okay? So I don't want you to feel pressure like, I don't want to carry an English Standard Version to church. I want to carry what I've, okay, that's fine. That's great, okay? In a corporate setting, what you hear from the pulpit, what you see in the pews, what you hear in Sunday school or Awana, this is what you're going to hear. You're going to hear the English Standard Version. So next time you're here, what are some things you might notice? Well, the next time you're here, you're going to come into a pew, and there's going to be a different pew Bible sitting in front of you. It's going to be an English Standard Version. And I'm going to tell you this. The middle Bible in every pew, we have three Bibles in each pew, the middle Bible is going to be a large print Bible. I know some of you will appreciate that. Um, you, you say, I have a hard time seeing the little, the little letters. And so we made, that, we made an effort to, to do that to get a, a large print for every pew as well. Um, some of you might, you know, some might ask, well, what are we going to do with these nice Bibles? We have nice Bibles here in our pews. Um, actually, I've already been approached about that. Um, many of you are familiar with Faith Baptist Church in Davison, who, who helps us out every year with our family fun fair. Um, they are in need of Bibles for their prison ministry. And so um, they, I, I, I was talking to the guy who leads that and telling him about, well, we're, we're looking at making a change here. If we did that, would this be, would you like these Bibles for the prison ministry? They said, yeah, we could really use those. So um, I talked with the, I've been talking with the deacons about this um, for months, and that's one of the things we talked about is we want to see these Bibles. We don't see them sit on a shelf. We don't see them not used. We want to see them used uh, for the glory of God. Um, what you may notice is the text might sound different, you know, just a little bit at least, as the messages are preached from the English Standard Version. Um, but, you know, you, one of the ways you can, you can mitigate that in your own life is to purchase or pull up an English Standard Version for yourself. The ESV is available via a free app. You can put it on your phone. It's an ESV Bible app, or you can get any of your Bible apps will have it. Or some of you like a paper Bible. I keep at home uh, a, my own personal paper Bible that I use for my devotions. It doesn't go many places with me because it, keeps, it has a lot of my own notes and those sorts of things in it. Um, Maybe you want a Bible to carry to church with you or keep it home with you, this English Standard Version. At the end of the service tonight, out on that table, um, there's going to be some handouts there. And that it lists out different uh, recommendations if you're looking for an English Standard Version. I, put on, I try to put on there a wide range of things, you know, like um, just a, one you want to carry to church, a large print, a study Bible. Um, they have specific Bibles for kids, you know, like my kids carry a, a children's Bible with them. Um, it has, uh, I think on there, like a journaling Bible. There's some student Bibles for teens that are looking to study God's Word a little more. Uh, and there's other things out there, but I try to just put together something that'd be helpful for you if you're looking for that. Um, and I just look forward to, to doing this together in our church. So what's the goal of everything here tonight? Well, my goal, number one, is to hopefully encourage you in your study of God's Word. That one, we have the truth of God's Word, and, and it is preserved for us today, and we can read and understand it. And, and yes, 
at the end, I wanted to communicate to you, hey, we're making a change of our practice here at Beaverton Baptist Church, but that really wasn't the focus of, of why we're here tonight. We wanted to talk about what God's Word is and why it's so important to us. And I want to say that, as I mentioned a minute ago, I appreciate the deacons of our church who always work through things like this. You know, we, we've been talking about this, Jay's here tonight, probably three or four months in deacons meetings um, discussing. You know, I said, came to the guys and said, hey, I really think that we should, I really feel like we should change to the English Standard Version, but I'd like to talk about this for a couple meetings and get your feel and, and understand where we are. Because I don't want to do something just because, well, that's just what you want to do, you know. Um, we want to make sure it's going to be helpful for our church and something that, uh, that, that can help us grow. And perhaps the thoughts on translations that we talked about tonight even challenges you to evaluate your own habits and reasons for what you use in your personal time with God. I, I could just tell you, I grew up in a church, as I shared with you a minute ago, we used the King James. It's a great translation of the scripture. And I got to college and began to be introduced to other translations, especially the English Standard Version. I remember after my freshman year of college, I was working at camp over not far from the UP, uh, Northland Camp out here. Um, not, um, we, I went to church. Some of you will know where this is. I went to church in Iron Mountain, Michigan every Sunday when I was at camp. And I remember I sat there ordering my textbooks, and I was like, well, I mean, I've heard of this English Standard Version. I'll order me one. And I ordered it and showed up at my house. And I was amazed at all the things. I had been reading the Bible my whole life. I was studying to be in the ministry. I was amazed at how I was challenged by things. I was like, well, I've never seen it that way before. Is it because this translation is better? Not necessarily. It's because the wording was different. I wasn't used to the way it was worded. And so it was jarring my brain to actually think about what I was reading. And so I, challenge, I, I would challenge you, if you haven't changed the, way, the version that you read in a while, change it and see what happens. Because, again... Not because it's any more spiritual or whatever, but because it might just challenge the way that you think about that text. Because sometimes we get into the flow and we're used to this, and it challenges us in that way. As always, I say this before, I'll say it again. If you want to talk about what we talked about here tonight, you say, oh, I'd really like to discuss that further. i got some more questions. You know my door's always open, okay? And I'd love to hear from you and talk to you about that. Um, I'd be happy to help you obtain further resources on maybe some of the things we talked about tonight, like textual criticism, uh, how you got your translations of your Bible, I mean, how to study your Bible. But I think what, what we most of all come out of this is, is we need to make time to spend with God every day in our lives. We need to spend time in his truth and ha- ask him to change us with that truth. So we look forward to continuing to serve the, the Lord the best we can here uh, with what he's given us here at Beaverton Baptist Church in the days ahead. Father, thank you for the time you've given us to be in your house tonight to study your word. I pray that you would challenge each one of our hearts as to how we study your word. Lord, if we are not spending the time we should, would you convict us of that? If we uh, should change something that we can better understand it or seek out help for that, would you challenge us and give us the courage and the boldness to do that as well? Lord, most of all, we want to be people of the word of God, not of a man's opinion or of this or that, but of who you, what you say of us, that we could stand before you one day and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us here as a church as we go through even just a little practical tweak of what we do to uh, see it as an opportunity to continue to grow in you and, uh, and grow more like you each day. Lord, we ask that you give us a great rest of our week. In your name we pray. Amen.